Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Perhaps the Fed is going loco. That is what President Trump has said, said that it is a mistake for uh, the central bank to raise rates as much as it has. Uh, He also said that they are being too aggressive and uh, yeah, going loco going crazy. These are the words. David Kotak joining us now, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Cumberland Advisors. David, how much do you care about these comments that President Trump is making about the Fed? Hey, Lisa, it's always a pleasure to be with you. You know, there's a real question here as to who's loco. (laughs) And I, I think the markets are telling you who's loco. The tape is red. The markets are telling you who has been loco over a trade war fight. Well, hold on a second. Wait, hold on a second. So you're basically saying that the tape is red because of the trade war fight and not because of the Fed raising rates. Is that correct? I think the Fed has been on a gradualist broadcast path, taking a step at a time, telling everybody who wants to pay attention what they're going to do, when they're going to do it, and trying to communicate it clearly. So to say they're crazy means I can't read, I don't look at anything, and I get all my news at late at night in a circular fashion from three journalists whose names we know. All right. Well, but David, just just to sort of push back a little bit here. I mean, we've known about the trade war for a while. We've known about the increasing trade tensions between China and the U.S. We've also known about the the forecast for Fed uh, rate hikes. So we've known both of these things for a while. How can you pin the recent sell-off on one or the other? I mean, it seems like somewhat it's a factor of both of them uh, joining up, right? I mean, if nothing else. But how do you tease this out? Well, you can say the following. Trade war rhetoric, which started at the beginning of this year, said we're going to become bellicose. And the market said, okay, this is a style of confrontation. It's a style of negotiation. But in the end, it'll all work out, and we'll get to the middle and compromise. And that was a progression. Meanwhile, the rhetoric intensified. Then we had some settlements. So we've seen Mexico, Canada, Korea. We're seeing settlements. When you examine the result of all the belligerency, there's not much in the way of change. The big one is China, the second largest economy in the world, four times our population, and a very active participant in Asia. And that has been digging in deeper and deeper and deeper. And now we're in a position where if there's no truce, there's a 20-25% tariff that's announced the U.S. must follow through under Trump, or Trump will have said something and have to bring it back. That's not his way. So that's where we are today. Notice today the market rallied four seconds yeah. on this meeting with Xi, and it's turning red again for good reason. When you pick a fight as a bully in the schoolyard, pick on somebody small. Don't take on the guy who's your size. All right. Well, uh, you know, let's let's just dig a little bit deeper, though, because right now we're still seeing fundamentals strong. We're still seeing profits rising at U.S. companies. So, you know, uh, would this be a buying opportunity, even given some of the outstanding concerns about trade tensions, uh, let alone 
rate rises or anything else? Well, that's an interesting question to evolve. I can't say what it is. I can tell you what we're doing. We are focused on the ETF portfolios, domestic-centric. As long as we see risk in the international structure, the U.S.-oriented portfolio is going to look at mid-cap, small-cap, even though they've corrected domestic businesses and selected sectors like defense. That one is not going to be touched. It's going to do well. So that's the stock area. On the bond area, we're doing a barbell. Interest rates are definitely on a higher trajectory. How far, when, what the influences are. You're an, an expert that has followed the bond market for years. And look at credit spreads. And suddenly, they explode. Italy yeah. is the latest example. Well, yeah, they, and I, they don't give you a warning, Lisa. You wake <laughs> up on a Tuesday, turn on Bloomberg, and Lisa is saying, look what happened in the last 24 hours. <laughs> well, one thing that I've been noticing, David, is that there have been some pretty substantial outflows from a number of credit ETFs. I'm thinking about HYG, for example, which is the biggest high-yield bond ETF uh, in the U.S., and it has seen nearly $3 billion of withdrawals in the past week alone. Invest Investment-grade bond ETFs also seeing some pretty substantial, unprecedented outflows. I'm just wondering, I mean, do you think that this is a harbinger of what's to come, or do you think that this is just sort of uh, knee-jerk positioning by a number of big institutions? Well, I think it's a harbinger of rising risk. When we had this discussion a couple of years ago, the short-term interest rate was near zero. Now it's two. When we had this discussion a couple of years ago, the tax-free interest rate was three. High-grade tax-free trade today above four. When we had this discussion, taxable mortgage-backed securities were lower. Now they're above five. There is competition coming off the coupon for the first time in 10 years. And that's a big deal. And the direction of the competition looks to be even more upwardly sloped in terms of yield. Mm -hmm. Certainly the short-term rate will be a quarter point higher before the end of this year. Yeah. David, uh, before I let you go, we just have about 30 seconds here, but where's your views on uh, on the municipal bond landscape? Because I know you wrote Adventures in Muniland, and we've seen some pretty big outflows from the uh, muni bond space as well. The intermediate section of the curve in the muni space is dangerous. The long end where the highest grade yield um, is Uh, above the 30-year Treasury yield by a wide margin is desirable, and dry powder in the front end, that's why a barbell beats a ladder hands down in this climate. You heard it here. David Kotak, always a pleasure. We love having you on. David Kotak is chairman and chief investment officer from uh, Cumberland Advisors based in Sarasota, Florida. I hope you avoided some of the bad weather we've been getting uh, in the hurricane. David Kotak is also co-author of the book Adventures in Muniland, advising a barbell approach, keeping some dry powder in the short end in case things really do blow up more from where we are. price of oil has been very interesting to watch. Usually when the dollar weakens, oil strengthens just because it is priced in dollars. Uh, Today, not so much. You're seeing the price of oil decline even as the dollar weakens. And it's the biggest two-day decline for crude going back to July. Let's get a check on what's going on here. Will Harris joins us now. He's European energy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Will, uh, let's just start with what OPEC came out with uh, today. What did we hear from them and how much is that what's affecting oil here? 
So oil prices are are off a little bit, as as you mentioned in the last couple of days, but I don't think that's to be unexpected given the contagion we are witnessing uh, globally across equity markets. Um, OPEC came out um, with their monthly oil market report, and, and one of the headline numbers was that they had revised their world oil demand growth forecast down marginally by 50,000 barrels a day. And what I think is really important to note here is putting this number in context. 50,000 barrels a day compares to about 100 million barrels per day um, in total um, for uh, world oil demand next year in 2019. So we are still expected to grow by over 1.3 million barrels a day next year. And, and just to um, add on to that, just two weeks ago, OPEC published its world oil outlook, whereby it raised its long-term oil demand growth forecast as well. So uh, I, I think we can look at, at this number uh, as, as, a, um, as, as a minor revision in the context of, of a actually very supportive uh, fundamentals for the oil market um, uh, through next year and longer term. So you said that you think that oil prices are off a little bit because of contagion. Is that because when there is a sort of jittery feeling in world equities, people expect global growth to slow and thus oil demand to drop off? Is that sort of uh, the knee-jerk response or is it something else? Yes, that's precisely it. And and the only other thing I would add is, is that layering on that as oil prices do increase, um, the uh, demand for oil does begin to tail off. Uh, as, as you can imagine, people people uh, elect to drive uh, a, a bit less, um, and 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 more efficiency in, um, in in how people are using oil as it becomes more expensive. So I guess I want to take a step back because we've been talking a lot about how if there is an ongoing conflict in Libya, Venezuela is a huge issue. If their uh, production drops much further, it already has dropped tremendously. If we have the uh, sanctions that go into effect soon against Iran, all of these things are going to uh, pressure the uh, oil supply dynamic to such a degree that it won't take anything at all or a very small disruption to really uh, cause prices to rise substantially. Do you adhere to that idea? Yes, precisely. And and so just as a little side note, I attended the Oil and Money Conference in London this morning and actually listened to Mohamed Barkindo, who is the OPEC uh, Secretary General, speak this morning. And notably, he didn't mention this marginal decline in oil demand growth for next year. But what he did do is he clearly laid out the scenario that they see on the supply side, which I view as consistent with the overwhelming consensus in the market and is one that is uh, a tightening market through next year. And it's attributed to four main factors, a couple of which you mentioned. Number one is these oil uh, Iran sanctions from from the U.S., which are pending in November, and they are starting to bite with about one million barrels per day of oil exports uh, removed from the market. Hmm. We have uh, second, we have a, a Venezuelan unprecedented production decline. This country was producing 2.4 million barrels a day in early 2016. It's down to 1.2 million barrels a day right now, so it's about halved. Third, we have uh, Permian pipeline bottlenecks in the U.S. Given the rapid growth in oil shale from the U.S., there's been some infrastructure constraints, which which are expected to be resolved in the back half of next year. So, so this will uh, cap U.S. growth. And fourth, on top of that, maybe the most important is that OPEC has declining spare capacity, which is estimated at about 1 million barrels per day. So I think these are the four key factors that we're seeing on the supply side. So when you were talking to people this morning, was the consensus that oil prices are poised to rise substantially from here? 
Yes, overwhelmingly, um, the executives from across the uh, upstream, downstream uh, sectors expect uh, sustained, uh, stable oil prices, um, 80 to 90, with with maybe a a couple of dissenters who who were outliers uh, thinking that it would uh, come back lower to... 60 or so. What's the concern that the demand side of this equation would be permanently dampened if prices did remain at that level? Well, I'm 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 not so sure about that. I I I think that that on the demand side, uh, overwhelmingly, we we are seeing a, a continuing uh, strong demand, al- mm. although it's slowing slightly. Um, but I I do think that there uh, that on the the demand risk side the. Um, we 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 do see potential uh, black swan ab- events, which which we obviously we can't uh, um, can't forecast, but but they are like um, a massive uh, economic contagion in, in the oil markets, um, a credit crunch, uh, things like that. But but barring those, uh, the demand side still looks relatively strong. Will Harris, thank you so much. Really wonderful insights uh, from this morning in OPEC's announcement uh, there from London. Will Harris is European energy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Oil prices uh, off a little bit uh, after gaining quite a bit. They're now currently, uh, if you look at WTI, trading at uh, $71.91. And if you take a look at Brent crude, you can see that it is also uh, trading lower. It is actually now at $81.40. So you are seeing a little bit of a sell-off, but still uh, within that 80 to $90 range uh, that Will Harris was talking about as a likely stable place that we're going to see for a while. We have been talking about the uh, sell-off that has been deepening today, although off the earlier lows, now the Dow Jones index just down by seven-tenths of one percent, SP 500 eight-tenths of one percent, NASDAQ actually not losing as much, which is kind of interesting. Let's bring Nick Colas into the conversation to find out why, just why are markets having such a difficult time right now? Nick Colas is co-founder of Datatrek Research in New York City. Nick, thank you so much for being with us. You're also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Do you think that there are legs to the recent sell-off? You know, I think for the moment, we have to be pretty cautious. These kind of high volatility days, like what we got yesterday, they come along once or twice a year, so they're not that unusual. But over the next month, they tend to show a market that's basically unchanged. So as tempting as it is to try to buy the dip, you have to be very careful. It's going to have a little ways to go for sure. Volatility doesn't just turn off like a light switch. Nick Colas, can you put this into some kind of context for us? Sure. Let me just give you a couple of historical stats to frame the discussion. You know, let's look at down 4% days on the S&P, which, including after hours yesterday, we certainly hit. And if you look at the history over time, a couple of things are pretty clear. The first is that and traders know all this math, so this is the playbook for what's happening right now. The on average, the day after a big meltdown day is actually up, up about 1.7%. And then over the next month, it's roughly flat, but over the next year, the average return is 20%. So the short take on this is 
periods of stress and volatility like this do create buying opportunities, but they don't immediately pay off. You might have a bounce the next day, but then you're going to have to eat through some churn and wait a year and you're generally better off. That's the playbook traders understand, but it is kind of anchored on the notion that we get an update a day, and so far that's not looking very good. Although it's interesting, the NASDAQ actually, actually just turned slightly positive. It's just kind of interesting to see the NASDAQ tech shares leading the way down yesterday, and today they're showing much more resilience. Does this mean anything to you in terms of uh, a lot of investors still seeing value in the uh, Apples and the Amazons and the Facebooks of the world, uh, regardless of interest rate rises or even uh, trade tensions? Yeah, no, it's a really important point because there is a lot of talk about rotation and devalue and tech being kind of yesterday's flavor and not tomorrow's. But we do need tech to rally in order for this market to rally. Tech is still 25% of the S&P. The defensive sectors are 10% or less. There's just not enough juice there in a rotation to get this market to turn. You do need tech to lead the way back up. Nick, I know that you used to cover the automobile industry. If you're looking to buy a car and it goes on sale and it's 3% less expensive, is that considered a bargain? It is not considered a bargain. What tends to happen is one of two things. Either you were going to buy anyway and the 3% is a gift, or you think, wow, that dealer really is stressed. Let me wait a week and see if that car goes down 10% in price, and then I'll step in. And it's a wonderful analogy to what's going on in markets. The people who are buying are going to buy, but the people who are really value-oriented, they want to see this market shake out. And that's a multi-day process. So let's talk about the why here, why markets are feeling so jittery these days. Do you think this is a trade story? Do you think this is an interest rate story? Or do you think this is just a natural people looking for data, not finding it and deciding not to do anything and sit on their hands and a couple sellers move the whole market? I think it's three things. I think the first thing is rates, absolutely. I think Chair Powell's comments about not being anywhere near close to neutral last week had spillover effects in the long term into the bond market. And I think stocks took their cue off of that. I think the second thing is China trade that's not getting resolved. And it's beginning to be a kind of headwind to markets. They realize it isn't going to get fixed as easily as the new NAFTA deal got fixed. So that's the second thing. The third thing is bond and stock correlations have flipped from being wildly negative to modestly positive. And if you can't hedge up a stock portfolio with bonds, you have to lighten up on everything. And so investors are saying, okay, at the very least, I can't be as exposed long as I have been for the last many years, because bonds aren't going to hedge me out the way it used to be. So those are the three things I think are driving it right now. All right, Nick, let me try to play devil's advocate here. Do you know anybody that's selling shares of Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Facebook, even Adobe, PayPal? These are the companies that are moving the NASDAQ higher right now. Do you know anybody selling those shares so that they can run out and buy a two-year treasury at 2.85%? No, but you know, as you know, the markets don't work, you know, point to point. They work in the aggregate. You have what clearly was some margin selling in the first, uh, say, 90 minutes of the trading day left over from the sell off yesterday. And on the flip side, you have people that have been shortening duration and bond portfolios pretty consistently for the, over the course of the last three months. And we see that very clearly in the ETF flows. So in aggregate, the story hangs together, but the point to point obviously never will. So I'd love to get your thoughts, Nick, on earnings. We're going to get the big banks reporting tomorrow. Then we're going to get a whole host of others following suit. What are you expecting and how important is this earnings season? 
Yeah, it's it's important because at the very least it'll take market attention away from the the macro and kind of shift it back to micro and earnings, which is a decent story. On the negative side, we already saw peak earnings, you know, for this year. That was in Q1 and Q2, 25% earnings growth. This quarter, by estimates, is going to be you know, 19% on the low end, 22, 23% on the high end, but not a not as good as the first half. And you have, I think, a lot of investor concern about what are companies going to say, particularly about margin and about revenue growth going into the back half of the year and into next year, because it's okay to have some declining earnings that are still good. The real worry now is what is next year going to look like, and can we really post 10% revenue growth on the back of a slower U.S. economy, more trade tensions, and can we really get operating margins to show some leverage if labor costs are rising? That is a big swirl of, of, of potential negatives that that investors will want to hear answers to before they step back in. Nick, taking a look at the trade in the energy complex today, crude oil on the NYMEX is down more than two and a quarter percent. Gasoline traded on the NYMEX down more than three and a quarter percent. Same story for heating oil, same story for natural gas down more than three and a half percent. If we get lower energy prices, is that going to be good for the economy? Um, yes, it absolutely is, and, and you've seen you, you've seen the effect of higher gas prices on even simple things like miles driven, which are an important proxy for economic growth. They really slowed over the course of the past couple of months as energy prices, gas prices rose. So, it definitely would be a nice tailwind. I'm reluctant to say that energy prices have peaked only because we're still walking into the um, November deadlines for the Iranian sanctions, and that's what was pushing oil prices up earlier. I'm not sure that is. The oil move in the last couple of days isn't just deleveraging of portfolios generally, and that we don't have one last leg up on oil prices. So I'm not really willing to declare victory there yet. I think there's still some near-term catalysts we have to focus on. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Nick Colas is the co-founder of Data Trek Research, and he is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. I want to turn our attention to something that we don't talk that much about, and that is fertility. And joining us now is Ernest Lumet, Dr. Ernest Lumet, co-founder and chief executive officer of Abziva, and that's based in Geneva, Switzerland. And it focuses on finding remedies uh, for fertility problems uh, for women. Uh, Dr. Lumet, thank you so much for being here. This is such a fascinating issue at a time when so many women are waiting so much longer to have children and then are having more fertility problems. How does that factor into your business model? Yes, that's very important because uh, we are indeed focusing on conditions which are uh, being more and more common. And as you mentioned, fertility is really a condition where more and more patients have to address. You know, the reason why is that women have this desire of doing studies, going professionally and being active. And as soon as you past your 30 years old, you start to have your fertility declining. And there is a conflict between maternity, having your baby, and uh, being very active professionally. So we need to address that. So how much have you seen fertility treatments uh, increase among the developed world? Yes. It's keep growing every year. And the main treatment now is in vitro fertilization and embryo transfer. And we see a number of cycles being increased every year. 
About 200,000 cycles are performed currently in the United States, but there are a limit in the United States, which is the economical aspect, because it's expensive, between 12,000 and 20,000 for an IVF, a US dollar for an IVF cycle. In areas where it's reimbursed, for example, in Europe, we have 800,000 cycles. Wow. And in Japan, for a third of the US population, we have 400,000 IVF cycles. And now in China, after they relaxed the one-child policy, it's 800,000 uh, cycles. So we will see that growing and continue to grow in the future. Okay, so your company, what are you working on in terms of new research to uh, help women have babies, uh, yes. whatever their issues may be? Yes. I mean, the IVF field improved a lot in the laboratory and improved the outcome, the success. But there have been no drug really to contribute to improving success for the last 20, 30 years. And we have been focusing on embryo transfer because that's the step where you have the highest failure rate. That means you put back an apparently healthy embryo in the uterus, mm. but only about one third of the woman will go home with a baby following that. So we have been focusing on this step. And the drug we are developing is a drug which is preparing the uterus for being quiescent and properly vascularized to help the embryo implanting. And we recently report the outcome of a phase three trial, which is a large trial, where we see that our treatment administered orally prior to embryo transfer increased take-home baby rate compared to placebo by 35%. Wow, and does it also mean that you don't have to implant as many uh, fertilized eggs? Exactly, that's a very important point. Because CDC is telling us in the United States that up to 50% of embryo transfer are done with two embryos or more. Right. Why? To increase success rate. But the price to pay is that 20 to 40% are multiple gestation, mainly twins, but with the risk of premature delivery, the morbidity, the mortality, and the cost of premature delivery. You get the octomom. Exactly. So with our drug, with single embryo transfer, the data support the concept that we are doing better that with double embryo transfer in terms of take-home baby rate. And therefore, not only we will reduce the number of IVF to get a baby, but I think it will support strongly single embryo transfer and therefore avoid all these complications with multiple births. I want to talk about just the broader market for this type of drug, given what we're seeing, women waiting longer. Uh, do you think that we've reached a tipping point in that, where people are starting to go back and have, have babies younger? Or do you think that this will only increase uh, as there are more women who enter the workforce and there's more equality in the workplace. Yes. I don't see there is indication that women are uh, readdressing uh, this aspect. We keep the see the demand is keep increasing. So I don't see we see now that women are deciding to have a baby earlier on than uh, uh, in the in the, in the past. So uh, no, I don't see this trend actually. Uh, now, obviously, the, there are many centers now addressing these needs, and women are aware. And one aspect is probably the fact that we start to have cryopreservation, freezing of eggs at younger age just as an insurance by saying, ah, maybe later on, I may have to face the fertility problem. We, we were just talking about how there are a number of big technology companies in the US that are paying for their women employees to have their eggs fertilized just in case so that they can keep working and not have to worry about finding somebody and going off and raising a baby. Correct. 
Yes, yes, it's interesting. And uh, companies like Apple and Google have proposed to actually pay for freezing the eggs in their employees so they can be more relaxed about their future fertility. There is a big debate around that. And there is even a technical debate. Just coming back from the uh, uh, American Society Reproductive Medicine meeting, where they debate how many eggs do you need to save to have 95% chance later on to get a baby. It's about 40 so it's a lot. And there is a debate now, how many eggs can you cryopreserve and what would be the cost? So, Dr. LeMay, you were uh, previously the founder of Preglam, which was acquired uh, for nearly a half a billion dollars. And I'm just wondering, what's your plan with this company, with Obziva, yes. which trades as OBSV on the NASDAQ? Yes. Well, we have uh, a large portfolio of three drugs in late clinical development. And um, the first drug that will reach a market um, is nolaziban, the drug for IVF. Uh, the beauty that we have with this program is that we have no competition, we don't change the standard of care, and we are targeting a limited number of IVF centers, 500 in the United States, for example. That means that commercialization is at reach for us. So for our objective is to bring the company to the commercial stage in the near future. Dr. Ernest Lumet, thank you so much for being with us. Really a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. Dr. Ernest Lumet is co-founder and chief executive officer of Abziva, which is uh, trades as OBSV on the NASDAQ, uh, based in Geneva, Switzerland. But he joins us here in our 1130 studios talking about uh, some of the fertility issues uh, that are increasing, frankly, as women wait longer to have children and some of the remedies that his company uh, is coming up with to remedy that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>